The David Cassidy Connections with Louise Poynton. Cherish the legacy. Well, hello and welcome to this week's special double episode. Broadcaster Alex Dyke recently caught up with former Spandau Ballet frontman Tony Hadley to record a special conversation for the David Cassidy Connections podcast. In the 1980s, Tony's distinctive voice helped the group become one of the most popular international acts with hits including Gold, True and Through the Barricades. Well, recently, Tony and Alex took time out from their busy recording schedule for their podcast, Stars, Cars, Guitars, which can be found on all major listening platforms to put down their memories of being a teenager in the UK in the 1970s. They reflect on fashion, music and how they became fans of David Cassidy. Tony explains his recording of David's hit single, How Can I Be Sure? And Alex examines the male perspective of being a fan. Afterwards, we will hear from British journalist Liz Jones, who remembers falling in love with David as a teenager and admits he changed so many girls' lives, including her own. But first, join me as we eavesdrop on Alex Dyke and Tony Hadley. Hi, Tony. Hi, dear. How are you, mate? You're right. Yeah, nice to see you again. Yeah, and you. Um, thanks for doing this. Um, we're going to talk about David Casty, but before we do, I know that you're uh, a massive fan of Bowie. How did the other glam rockers sit with you, the Slades and the T-Rexes? Brilliantly, I'd say. I got into, well, I mean, Bowie, obviously. It's, it's kind of funny because David Bowie, the first I ever heard of David Bowie was the laughing gnome. Then my uncle had a record shop and he gave me The World of David Bowie. And it had Uncle Arthur, Little yeah. Boy Blue. I remember playing that. Um, and my mum said to me, so is that the new Anthony Newley record? And I went, <laughs> no, mum, shut up. That's the, that's the new, that's David Bowie, you know. And this is before Ziggy or anything. And I immediately loved his voice. And it was actually very Anthony Newley. Uh, but he was brilliant. And then I, I, I was into Slade. I got my first tape recorder that was ever, my mum and dad bought me a tape recorder. And that's kind of how I got singing. And one of the tapes they gave me were the Kinks and Slade, Slade Alive. Oh, yeah. And that, because they were like a skinhead band before mm. they ever became a glam rock band. And uh, just thought the energy and obviously his voice, I mean, like, wow, it's like, amazing. And um, so got into Slade. Then, of course, they became really commercial and everything else. But, uh, but then the other one, I loved Roxy, uh, but Mark Boland, T Rex. Now, there's a double album of Mark Bolan and T-Rex um, with Peregrine Took on, uh, on percussion. Mm. And it's, it's before he, he got really commercial. And it's a double album. And it's, it's something that it goes something, you know, we were, we were children of the stars and something like that. That's what it had on the album cover. And it was all very percussive and sort of beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. Got out there, completely out there. And, uh, but Mark Bowler knows, a top, top man. See, for me, that's funny because you're only a couple of years older than me. And for me, it was Hot Love, Jeepster. And when yeah. I saw him do Metal Guru on Top of the Pops, yeah. it was like he had landed from out of space. A bit like people say, and for me, that was a bigger deal. This is sacrilege, what I'm going to say now. 
and even to you, that was a bigger deal for me than Bowie doing Starman on top of the pots. But Bowie doing Starman mm-hmm. on top of the pots is one of those moments that a lot of us remember. Yeah, yeah. I think it was July 72. Well, a month before that, Mark had been on top of the pots doing Metal Guru. Yeah. And it just blew me away. Well, I think, you know, he was such, I mean, he was an incredible looking bloke. I mean, he looked a million dollars and, and he had this kind of, almost spiritualness about him. Mm. It was, it was, I don't know, he was, a fascinating, he was a fascinating guy to look at. And I mean, the songs were were kind of just rhythm and blues, really, with these kind of wacky lyrics. I mean, they're more involved than that. But, you know, medical, and he would repeat the lyrics over and over and over again. There weren't a lot of lyrics in some of the songs. and uh, but, but fantastic. But no, Bowie with Starman, yeah, I remember that. Uh, but also, yeah, I mean, my, in those days... Everybody watched Top of the Pops. I mean, the whole thing, you'd sit there with your mum and dad, your brother and sister, and if your gran and granddad were around for tea, they'd watch it too, because they'd sit there, what a bleeding LG wearing now, look at his long hair, look at that state of that, he's got makeup on, and do you know what I mean? It's like that generational thing. But um, no, loved Top of the Pops, loved all those bands. I mean, you know, Roxy doing Virginia Plain. Oh, yeah, oh. great, but that was a little more avant-garde and maybe that's the difference in our ages you were just a little bit older than me so i was much more into the uh, the t-rex and that kind of stuff i never saw them live the last gig they did was in portsmouth supporting the damned in the summer of 77 but you saw mark at his height didn't you i saw him well he he sort of had a comeback because i mean mark boland was having hit after hit after hit and then he had a couple of, I mean, it's in everybody's career, hits a bit of a, hits the buffers at some point. And so I remember uh, he had a record at New York, did you ever, well, did you ever yeah. see a woman going through New York City with a frog in her hand? I mean, barking mad. Mm. I mean, what was he on? I don't know. But he then, uh, he did a sellout gig at the Rainbow Theatre in 1977 with Eddie and the Hot Rods supporting Mark Bodum. Oh wow! And I was really? there, and uh, and then it was it was his last London show, and then he very very sadly died. So, yeah. um, but amazing show! I mean, incredible show! I mean, such charisma! Just you know, there, there are certain people that are going to be stars, and he was always going to be a star. I think you're right about his look too, because he was effeminate. He was sexy. He was very rock and roll. He had lots of thrust and guster. So he was kind of this half man, half girl. Lovely face, high cheekbones, fabulous hair. Um, And he just looked like a rock star too. He did. He was amazing. And do you remember he had a TV show? Mark. Mark, yeah. (laughs) And it was was so camp it was unbelievable i remember i was i was working in a warehouse down at black's uh Blackfriars for ipc and i knew that david bowie was going to be a special guest on the star mm. on his show and i remember saying to my supervisor or something i've got to pop out i'll go buy you all a coffee <laughs> and found a cafe around the corner because i wanted to see david bowie's performance with mark bowen i mean that's how much he loved music in those days and yeah you used to get the album and you studied the lyrics where it was made and uh, it's become a little bit more uh, sort of transient than that these days. Do you think, though, that music was more special then because you were slightly star because you were slightly starved of it? So for me to hear records really loud, I had to go to the youth club and listen to them very loud in the disco. Yeah. I couldn't afford every record in the top forty. I only probably afford one a week. Yeah. So we waited for the top of the pops. We had the we had 
top 40 on Sundays on, on Radio 1, then a little bit of Transistor, but it was medium wave, it would crackle. Yeah, yeah. Do you think music, do you think there's, I hate to say this to you because you're still recording some brilliant stuff, but do you think there's too much music now? Well, it was a very different situation in those days. To make a record, you needed the record company, you needed someone to pay for that, you know, that studio that was going to cost hundreds of pounds and eventually became thousands of pounds. You know, a reel of two-inch tape. I'm getting very technical. Sorry about this, listeners. But, um, you know, you, you needed a record company to market you and promote you. You couldn't do it on your own. There were no independent record companies in those days. So you needed your, your, your CBSs and your EMIs and whatever, Chrysalis Records. And now someone with, a, with an Apple Mac computer can make a genuinely great sounding record and they can make that in their room and uh, but also you've got to remember that in those days I'm sounding really old there you didn't have that much you had I don't know when I was a kid growing up you had three TV channels BBC One BBC Two ITV fashion you know you you were you know early days mods rockers skins uh, glam uh, but you couldn't afford it and you couldn't really afford that many records. You had to save your pocket money or do your Saturday job and to, to buy that album, to buy that single. Um, different times, the social media didn't exist. Uh, and it was, it, was a, it was a completely different time. You used to sit around with the family and watch Morecambe and Wives. I mean, and, 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 maybe, and maybe watch other programs like the Roger Whittaker show that you yeah. weren't interested in because you knew halfway through there would be a pop act yeah. on there. Absolutely. And it might yeah. be T-Rex, but actually it might be the new Seekers. <laughs> you just never knew. I mean, it was just, it, it was totally different times there. And, um, and then I think with the advent of punk, that's when the, that really upset the apple cart. And I remember that was it the Grundy show, Bill Grundy show. Yeah, Bill Grundy show, yeah. And, uh, you know, Sex Pistols went on there and, and he taunted him. He said, you yeah, know, come on, then you think you're... You're big and come on then, give us a few swear words. And they did, of course. Mm. And he got sacked. That was mm. front page of the newspaper the yeah. next day. And so all of a sudden, there, there was something that was... Punk was scary to the establishment because it was, it, was slight, it was slightly nasty. But it wasn't, actually. I used to go to the punk clubs. It was the friendliest place to go to, to watch Susie and the Banshees or The Clash or, you know, all the other bands, The Vibrators and The Buzzcocks. Uh, and it was a great time for, but it did it did really give that glam rock rock period a sort of a bit of a kick up the pants. Uh, but I still loved Bowie, and I still loved all those other glam rock artists, even though I was a bit of a punk rocker as well. Look, we've got to talk about David Casty. I've had an email from a lady called Louise Poynton, who is doing a David Casty podcast, and she emailed me. She said, "Look, you know Tony. I wonder if you could." both talk about David Cassidy for me and I've, I've said earlier we're about the same age yeah so the first program I ever saw on a color television in November 1971 our black and white tv was on the blink and I pleaded with my dad for weeks and weeks and weeks can we get a color yeah. tv and he said look we're trying for the my dad was not into renting did, he, oh did you oh you didn't rent yours he then? didn't rent it he said we're either going to own it or yeah. we're not going to have it. I'm not going to rent it. He thought that was chucking good money after bad, right? So See, we always rented. And a lot of people D did. DR, DR rentals. Yeah, <laughs> and and it was over three hundred pounds this TV, and there were only really? yeah. At, so wow. so then it was a Philips color TV. So the, I I went to the, the the shop. 
and I followed the TV van down the road on my rally chopper. Yeah. I was so excited, and the guy plugged it in, and there was a bit of sport on, probably the end of uh, World of Sport. And I got all settled down, and the first thing I saw on, on colour television was the Partridge family. And yeah. I really... You and I weren't meant to like David Cassidy. No. We were, you know, Bowie, uh, Slade, T-Rex, yeah. Mott the Hoople. But I actually loved David Cassidy's music. Well, I did too, because that's where I, I mean, 300 quid for a TV and you had a chopper bike. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so jealous. I didn't have a chopper bike. I didn't. So we, like I said, we used to rent our colour TV. As we got a colour TV, it was about 1971. Yeah. And I, I, so just a very quick story about it. I remember my mum and dad coming in to take us into the front room, living room and saying, all right, kids, anything different? And we sort of said, uh, so me and my brother, Stephen, my sister Lee, Said anything different? I said, uh, got a new black and white TV. No. Would you want to turn it on? So he said, oh, okay, all right, turn it. So we turned it on. And in those days, the TV would take hours. It would take, (laughs) not hours, that's an exaggeration, but it would take some time to warm the tubes. And we all sat there watching it. So I said, new black and white TV. Oh, that's nice. Color, color, color. We honestly, we three kids jumped around, around the room and everything else. So I can totally relate to what you're saying. This was new technology beyond, you know. It was a huge deal for us, wasn't it? That oh, some, and not everything was on in colour. Once you got a colour yeah. TV, there was still some black and white stuff on there. But I do say to my kids, you know, you won't understand. That, and I think that's why Top of the Pops and Glam Rock and all of that was so big because of the colour TV yeah. revolution. It made it more exciting. So I see David Cassidy in 1971 and I like this guy. Donnie Osmond, he was a girls act. I know now he's very, very um, professional and I like a lot of his stuff now and he's a great turn. Yeah, yeah. But David Casty was a bit well, rock it was, and roll. It was, it was Susan Van Day. Susan, Susan Van Day? Yeah. It? Susan Van Day, that's it. And she was like, oh. And all my mates, we used to watch the Partridge Valley because we all fell in love with Susan Van Day. She was absolutely gorgeous. And the mum was really nice as well. Shirley... Shirley Jones. Jones, Shirley Jones. Who was, was married to... Jack Cassidy. Jack Cassidy, who was Jack Jones's dad, wasn't it? No, Jack... So Shirley Jones is married to Jack Cassidy. So Jack Cassidy's son is David Cassidy. Ah, that's it. That's it. I got that completely wrong. Sorry, we're at it Erased. Now. We're at that. <laughs> so... So Shirley Jones... So she was... I mean, she was one of the most glamorous mums I've ever seen. Then you've got Susan Van Day. And then, of course, you've got David Cassidy... Who was suit, and you had Danny on the show as well, and um, and David Cassidy was, you know, everyone wanted a David Cassidy haircut as well because he had that really kind of cool hair, and he just had the best smile. He was just, and, and they used to sing their songs, and he. What I loved about David Cassidy was his voice. What a voice! I thought it was a fantastic sounding voice, the tone of it, and everything else. So, I became a sort of David Cassidy fan were you a bit of a closet fan though were you worried to tell people at school that you well, liked him i told more of the girls than i did the boys because mm. <laughs> the girls if you were david yeah i love david cassidy you like david cassidy yeah i do i really like david cassidy but he i think he just had a really great voice i mean and he was and the songs were good that was the other thing you know sort of you know could it be forever i mean just beautiful and he had that Little sort of vibrato in his voice, and uh, yeah, top top artist. So he had the Wrecking Crew playing on those songs, which is is great. If you've got the top 
musicians, the top session musicians in yeah. California. That's going to help. They're good people writing the songs, a bit like the Monkees. I'm not a singer. I'm not a musician. What was so great about his voice? I know he's got a nice voice, but you being a singer could tell me why. Well, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? Which was a cover of a band. Rascals. The Rascals. Thank you very much. Alex, I knew you were going to get that one. And The Rascals. I did a cover of that on a swing album I did of Passing Strangers. It's, a, it's the transition. The vocal transition is, is, is big. And it's quite a difficult song to sing. And when you hear uh, David Cassidy singing it, you realise how good a voice he had. And he really did. And he just... I, I just love the tone of his voice. I think he had a, a, you know, the whole thing about singing, okay, is not how many twiddles you can do, not how, how wonderfully you can sing, not how technical you, are, technical you are. It's when you put a record on, do you know who's singing the song? And a David Bowie record, as soon as you put that on the turntable, you knew it was him, just as you did with Mark Boland, David Bowie and Brian Ferry. And that's, for me, is what makes a singer. Interesting. Mm. Did you follow his career with much interest? So, you know, there was Daydreamer, there were, there were other numbers. I've got ones. the singles, I've got them. Yeah? And, I, I got, and, and the one I always loved was the B-side of, I think it was Could It Be Forever, and it was um, Storybook Love. It's a storybook love and it's all and it's all. I don't know that one. Uh, that's a brilliant song. It's a great, I mean, even the B-sides were good. I'll <laughs> meet you halfway. <laughs> Do you know I'll meet you halfway? I, no, I don't know that I'll one. I'll meet you halfway. It's no. better than no way. Oh, oh. we'll have to play that in we'll a minute. We'll have to find that one, don't yeah. we? Yeah. But then in 75, he signs a deal with RCA and he does um, I Write the Songs. Has a big hit with that. Yeah, First yeah. person in Britain to have a big hit with it. But he does a brilliant version of the Beach Boys' Darling and he's backed up by the guys from the Turtles. Yeah. Good song. Great, Great song. I mean, Great choice of records. I mean, he, he really, I mean, when you think of also his fans, I mean, there was him, Donny Osmond, basically Rollers, uh, around that whole kind of mad period where fans were like, you, you'd have thousands of fans at the airport as he came in from LA or wherever he, he was living. And uh, you, they, they, they'd go mad. David Cassidy fans were mental. And there, there was, wasn't there a tragedy or something? There were some fans that were crushed and unfortunately yeah. one girl died. Yeah, and that, I, that kind of um, that was a bit of a moment in that kind of mad hysteria thing that fans had for their artists, and um, uh, and that I think that changed an awful lot of things, and probably changed him as an artist because mm. yeah, that's a, it's such a tragic thing. You know, people go to a concert to have a good time; they don't want to. That was so tragic, and very very sad. When you think back to when you first hit big fame and you're number one and you're playing country after country after country on a huge tour did did you ever think back at how it must have been for david cassidy because i think for about 18 months he was as big as elvis oh absolutely all right and just touring filming personal appearances it was relentless and i would imagine that is very hard to cope with well, the record company, you know, once if you've achieved a degree of success and if you achieved it on the same level as David Cassidy, they're going to put you on the wheel and you're going to be rolling with it and rolling with it. And, and they will have you literally doing interviews all day long, TV appearances, flying here, flying there, because they're going to want to make the most out of you. And you obviously want to promote your fame and your fortune, I suppose. Um, but it takes its toll. 
I mean, you can see that with, I mean, probably the last big teen band was 1D, One Direction. Mm. And I felt for those guys because I thought, wow, those guys have been put through the rinser. They really have. And I've met them and they're really nice guys. But there's only so much you can do and take. And you end up turning, in some cases, to other things. And uh, and whether David Cassidy did or not, I'm, I'm not sure. But, um, but it, it certainly took its toll. And I mean, we experienced it on a on a pretty big level with Spandau. I mean, the, 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 there was that whole teen screen thing, screen thing, I should say. And, um, but you can't take it too seriously. And, and that's the thing, don't take the fame too seriously uh, because it can really sort of mess with your mind if you do. Well, you seem to have coped very well. It's always lovely to catch up with yeah. you. Yeah, well, thanks, May, and you. Well, I think you just have to put it in perspective. We do a job that is a wonderful job. It's a beautiful job, it's a hobby that became a, a, a paying hobby. You know, people say to me, say, well, what, what, what do you do? What else do you do? And I say, I don't really do anything. You know, I like walking, I like working out and stuff. I love being with my family. But what my hobby, you know, I get paid to do a hobby, which is music, so I love it. And I've always been lucky to keep my feet very firmly on the ground with good friends and family and stuff. And um, that's not always the same thing for other artists. So I, I count my blessings and I think I'm very lucky. He's a rock and roll survivor. He's Tony Hadley. Let me play you. I'll meet you halfway. I wish you would, because I'd die to hear this. Absolutely. I've not heard this before. You're listening to the David Cassidy Connections with your host, Louise Poynton. Liz Jones is former editor of Murray Clare, was features editor at the Evening Standard and spent 11 years at the Sunday Times. She writes for the Mail on Sunday. She recalls the two occasions she met David to interview him conceding it is never a good idea to meet your idol. Liz explains why having an idol is important and the powerful emotions teenagers have. Do you remember when you first came across David? Yeah, I think the first time I saw him was when they ran the first episode of The Potter Family. And then I started buying the magazines like Jackie because I had older sisters, so they were already buying Jackie. I was reading Diana, which was like the younger magazine. But it's funny, I had three sisters, but I was the only one who had these insane crushes on pop stars, movie stars. They didn't bother. They went for real boys. But I preferred my sort of imaginary ones, like Paul Newman, Ben Murphy, who was in Alias Smith & Jones, David Cassidy... I preferred my pinups, whereas my other sisters weren't interested in pinups. They liked the Beatles and so forth, but they didn't have pictures on their wall. And the, I remember at school, we had a disco dancing competition. I must have been 12. And I entered this disco dancing competition to win a David Cassidy poster. And I won it. That's how obsessed I was. <laughs> I'd never normally dance in front of anyone, but I had to have this poster. <laughs> Oh, and I didn't really buy the records because we didn't have a record player. I didn't have any money. So it was just the odd snatch you'd get on television. Yeah. And looking at his photograph, I didn't really have his records. I mean, I have now, but not then. Well, it becomes, a, you know, as you say, it's just that little glimpse you have once a week of him, waiting every week for the teenage magazines to come yeah. out. And that was our only source of information about him. That glimpse of him intensified the emotions um that you have as a teenager so when you see him in concert it just exploded he'd suddenly come to life 
And I guess it's a way of practicing and it's a way of going through heartbreak because I don't know, they retire and you don't see them anymore, you know? So I guess it's like a rehearsal in a way for, for real life. Um, but for me, it just ruined me for any man because they weren't David Cassidy. Seriously. Um, and I'm wondering what type of a girl it is that that happens to. I mean, personally, I was very shy, very quiet, very nervous, anxious, didn't speak to anyone. So real boys were too scary for me. So he sort of fitted the bill, really, because he wasn't scary. So I do think it's a certain type of girl who is attracted to idols. It's not every girl, because my sister thought I was mad. And I'm wondering if it's the slightly more vulnerable girl who's got shyness, anxiety, because that was certainly me. Mm. I didn't have the courage to talk to a boy at a bus stop, so all my love went to David Cassidy. And it's like girls who tend to get eating disorders. They're the more thoughtful, introspective, self-doubting girls. So I think he attracted, personally, I think he attracted more vulnerable girls, sensitive, you know, a bit shy, perhaps a bit lonely, you know. So he's just a nice friend, isn't he? He's something to think about. He's like a hobby yes. and it gives you a focus, you know. Right. And like a meaning, you know, a meaning like you look forward to Thursday night every week. It gave you some sort of direction. I wonder if David's fans were quite special, really. That's an in interesting point of view on it. When you have an idol, that helps to give you an identity. If you're a very shy, young 10, 11, 12, 13 year old, you might not have many friends or you might just have one very good friend. And suddenly here is an idol that you can, in a way, identify with because yeah. they give interviews and say that they're shy and he hasn't got a girlfriend. And you think, oh, well, I know how he feels because, you know, I haven't got a boyfriend and yeah. I'm shy. Yes, because we were fed, we were fed this fantasy, weren't we? That he was very pure, he didn't take drugs, he didn't drink, he didn't have a girlfriend. But then when I read his autobiography, his hotel was full of groupies. Um <laughs> But we didn't know that at the time. He was very innocent to yes, us. Yes, Just a nice boy. Didn't know he was quite wild. But there was this hint of danger about him all the while. There was, yeah. yeah. But we didn't think he'd be having groupies in his... I certainly didn't think he'd have groupies in his hotel room. It was interesting. I wanted to go and see T-Rex when I was in my teens because Mark Bolan was my other hero. And yeah, I love Mark Bolan. He was too dangerous according to my mum and dad, to go and see. And <laughs> after oh. I'd been to see David in concert, I thought, well, you want dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> to, um, yeah, I, was, I, I really like Mark Bowden. He's another small, slight person, isn't he? Where I was never into David Bowie at all. He was quite scary to me. I didn't find him attractive. Because girls, they just go for pop stars where they fancied them, don't they, really, first and foremost. And if you didn't fancy David Bowie, it meant I wasn't really into him. But I think also as teenagers, you're kind of required to have an idol. You had to like one of the Beatles, or you had to like one of the monkeys, but you had to like a Beatle. And if you said, oh, I like Paul, oh, no, he's mine. You can't have, have him. You'll have to have one of the other three. Yeah. 
Yeah. And suddenly when David appeared, he was on his own. He was our first solo artist. Suddenly here is David. And the fact he was American as well just added to the glamour of it all. And as you say, you those emotions that we had for David, you can think back and remember those days and and I still feel yeah. the same way I did, and I still yeah. smell Charlie perfume. You know, on one of his greatest hits CDs, there's a recording of girls screaming, and that level of screaming, I've never heard screaming like it. It's a completely unique sound, isn't it? Mm. And that completely took me back, that sound of girls screaming. I don't think that intensity of screaming was even at Shea Stadium for the Beatles. It was like another level, wasn't it? It was absolutely a unique sound. And when I heard that screaming again, it just immediately took me back to the hysteria. And I've never heard a sound like it. Totally unique. And I'm sure he was terrified in some ways, you know, all those girls screaming at him. And no other man, no other feeling for a man didn't come close to what I felt for him. You want to attain that level of adoration, but you're never going to get it again. And I don't think people appreciate how powerful those feelings are in teenage girls because we were children. But they're incredibly powerful. I mean, I've never felt that way about a man since. Just the sight of him. Um, and in those days, you didn't have YouTube and you didn't have streaming of music you had to battle to see something didn't you and it would be a few seconds on top of the pops and that was it and you couldn't watch it again because they weren't tape record you know there wasn't video um so in a way that made it more intense and more precious because you could only just get a glimpse mm. or you'd see him by the magazine that he's on but now i wonder if it is as intense because you could stream One Direction videos all day, couldn't you, to your heart's content? And I think it was that rarity of seeing, of trying to see him. And I remember I went to see him at White City. And my parents didn't really care that I'd gone. They weren't worried it was dangerous. They didn't think I was going to be trampled. It's weird, isn't it, mm. that they let me go off and do that. I was with the girls from school. But no night has ever surpassed that night when I went to see him in White City. And he was just this little speck in a spangly suit in the distance. Um, and it was mass hysteria, absolute mass hysteria. And you're right, you didn't know what to do with your emotions. You know, you cried. And, but I've never felt that love since. It's quite astonishing that one person can have such an impact um, yeah, what was it about him? But he was also quite feminine, really, wasn't he? He wasn't a big, burly rocker. It was, he was slightly girlish, snake-tipped, had the feather cut, um, hairless chest. I remember on the cover of Rolling Stone, he didn't have any hairs on his chest. So although he was sexual and grinding his hips and dancing and everything, he, was, he felt quite safe. Yeah. He didn't really feel like a man. So yeah. I think that was part of his appeal, but definitely more dangerous than, say, Donny Osmond. But it's a shame. It, when I went to Las Vegas and I met his wife and I met his son and he's very into horse racing and he had all these TV screens around watching horse races. But he was just so humorless and I, he had this horrible short haircut, which has obviously died. And I said to him, oh, it's such a shame you don't still have your feather cut. And he just got really cross. And he just didn't like, he didn't like people bringing up that period. 
-hmm. it just seemed to make him really angry and he kept telling me how he even before the show he was a serious musician he was a serious actor so even though he was so popular and so loved he felt a failure because he wasn't doing what he thought he should be doing right. he didn't accept it and say yeah this is fantastic I sell so many records and all these girls love me he saw it as failure he, he just felt completely disillusioned but then he got me tickets to see his show that he put together, he wasn't in it, about the Rat Pack. So I remember being so excited in Las Vegas and I went to the theatre, it was in a hotel and I'm in the front row and um, I got a tap on my shoulder and I thought, it's going to be David, it's going to be David, he's just joining me at the show. And it was a waiter and he gave me a glass of champagne and he said, that's from Mr Cassidy. Oh, Funny, isn't it, how women and girls, especially, you just... You build your hopes up and you build them up yeah. into something that they're not. You think he's going to turn up at your school and take you to the cinema and that's as far as it goes, really. You know. You're so right. There was just something unique about him that he stood above everybody else at, at that yeah. time. Yeah. But at the same time, he was probably the most underappreciated musician as a solo artist of, of that era. And as you say, that was that's probably where a lot of the regrets yeah. stem from. Because Cause he did have an amazing voice and very breathy. I mean, I can listen to How Can I Be Sure or something. It still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. So he did have a very unique voice. And as I say, the song songwriters were absolutely fantastic. And he did write his own songs, but he just never felt he got the same success writing his own songs. Funny, isn't it? He, he, he felt unloved, that his dad didn't appreciate him. Mm. But so many of us told him we loved him, but it didn't make, didn't make him feel loved because he just dismissed it. Yeah. And obviously it's not real, is it, really? Because you're loving him from a distance. You don't really know him. But he just seemed very bitter. And it's a shame, really. And I think I said this to him, that he's given us so much... It's a shame he didn't get anything from it, really, because mm. he didn't like the fame. He was traumatised when the fan died at one of his concerts. Um, he didn't have any money. I remember him telling me how much money he got from all from that whole team career, and I'd have to look it up. Even though I was interviewing him, he was promoting a greatest hits. Um, and when I interviewed him the second time, he was promoting selling all his memorabilia. He sold the white spangly suit. I would have bought it, actually, if I'd had the money. Yeah, in London, I went to the auction of, at the Hard Rock Cafe of his costume, and he introduced everything, and then we went to the Savoy afterwards, and I did the interview, and he was just miserable, grumpy, humourless. It destroyed all those teenage memories, did it, and those teenage... Yeah, you should never, you should never meet your idol, I don't no. think, because it just, it's better to keep them as a nice memory. But I remember his PR apologised after the interview in the hotel and she said, look, you know, he's just so bitter that he didn't make any money and he's had to sell all his memorabilia and he's just feels he's ripped off and he never got over that, really. He didn't want to be there promoting it and he didn't want to be interviewed and he didn't want to rake up the palms. And Nina Mishkoff was at the auction of the clothes and she was talking to me about him. 
she was reminiscing about being the editor of Jackie and how what David did for the sales of teen magazines, I mean, off the scale. So one week she had the idea of having a poster of his bottom half. So the next week you had to buy the magazine again to get the top half. And then you had this giant David on your wall. So they were very clever at exploiting him. But she was quite fond of him. and She was much more forgiving towards him than I was. So she just wrote about him and put him in Jackie as a job. So she didn't have that same emotional connection with me. She She had a lot more sympathy for him than I did. And she was like, yes, but you have to realize what it was like for him at the time. Right. He couldn't do anything, he couldn't go anywhere. He was supposed to appear at Top of the Pops in the studio. He flew into Heathrow, no, no hotel were taken. It was too dangerous for him to go to the studio because it was surrounded. And that's why he did that video of him just walking around the tarmac under planes in Heathrow. Awesome. He wanted to be taken seriously as an artist. And, you know, he was an actor and he felt it just took over his whole life. And he felt he was better than... Keith Partridge, he was better than singing someone else's songs, but actually they were incredible songs, but he just didn't appreciate them. He wanted to be his own, to write his own songs and to act in serious movies. And Can, can you remember where you were when, uh, when you heard the news that he died? Well, somebody, I was on the concourse at King's Cross and someone sent me a text and my boyfriend is called David. And they said, oh, my God, have you heard he's in hospital? Because he went into hospital, didn't he, for a few days before he died. And I was like, oh, God, no, what's he done now? But then when I found out it was David Cassidy, I was like, oh, no, what's going on? Poor but when it was my David, I didn't really care. But when I heard it was David Cassidy in hospital, I was absolutely distraught. And it didn't sound good. And then, obviously, you were a little bit prepared. But at, the, at first, I wasn't concerned because I thought it meant my David. I didn't know it was the David. It just shows it, doesn't it, how mad we are. Why do you think that we should remember him? Uh, Because it would be a shame if he was forgotten, because he did change so many girls' lives. I'm sure he did. And he made us happier. And he gave us so much. He just made my childhood far more interesting than it would have been. Um, So I think we owe him that much, really. And I, I'm, I hope other people find him and discover him all over again. I know you met him and you say you should never meet your idols, but was it still a, a nice to be able to stand in front of him and actually see him for real? Well, I was so nervous. I had to fly to LA, then you have to change planes, then you, planes, then you have to fly to Las Vegas. And I was staying in this awful hotel because the hotels there are awful. They've got like 600 rooms. And you order room service and they say that will be three hours because there's so many people. And I took a taxi to his house. But then I did start to enjoy it and I, I, I tried to have a bit of fun with it. And his son was very sweet. I've met quite a few of my idols. Like I've met Prince. I sort of snubbed Paul McCartney. On the whole, I don't think it's a good idea to meet them in the flesh. Because they're not going to want to go out with you. they're not going to be that nice to you so it's best just to leave it really having said that emotions that you went through when you heard that he'd died yeah no I was still sorry even because I understood the reason he was so bitter and grumpy was because he'd been completely ripped off so I did feel sorry for him Mm. and quite protective towards him really he seemed very fragile to me 
uh, because I think it was funny in, in, in the paper, the headline was David Cassidy ruined my life. So I'm sure he wasn't very happy about that. So I blamed him for everything. And he was probably like that bloody British woman turning up. So I went through his bins as well and he wasn't very happy about that. Yeah, well, his son found me in his wheelie bin outside his house. So that was, but David didn't find that funny. Did he not compensate you by saying, hey, have this? <laughs> no, absolutely. He wouldn't give me an autograph, nothing. And it's funny because he knew I was a huge fan because I kept telling him and I knew every inch of his career. But I guess you're going to be a bit skewed if you've got all these people telling you they love you. So poor David having to deal with all these mad women who are in love with him. What's he supposed to do, you know? But he didn't want the sort of fan that I was, which was an 11-year-old girl who was just completely in love with him. He wanted respect from other musicians. Poor David. Because but I'm going to forget about meeting him and what he was like and just remember him, how he was. But that documentary about his last album, I found that so upsetting. David wanted what the Beatles had, which was to progress from being teen idols and people screaming to being serious artists. But he didn't get that for whatever reason. If you have enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, share on social media, and I would love it if you subscribed. That way you can find out first when a new episode is available. Until we connect again, stay safe, take care of yourselves and each other.